the expression of excitement and jubilation that we feel this evening, having been blessed by God to allow us to gather like this is truly a magnificent thing. And we're very thankful and appreciative of the presence of each and every one, our membership, uh, regular membership, as well as our visitors alike. And certainly as we give some thought tonight to a continuing study of the book of Exodus, let me invite you to come to chapters 16, 17, and 18. It has been our attempt over the last several weeks to study in this book along with our youngsters as they so diligently prepare for the Bible Bowl, as they study the first 24 chapters of that book with the exception of chapter 6. They have already learned so much having been reminded of those remarkable events such as the plagues, such as the crossing of the parted Red Sea, such as the instances around the burning bush in chapter 3. Our studies on Sunday night have brought us, as we have overviewed all of that, to the point tonight where we will briefly summarize last week's lesson and then move into the next major consideration turning our attention again tonight to chapters 16, 17, and 18. It has been our desire and all along to not only appreciate the historical record, that in its own right is significant, but we've also come to realize that the Old Testament Scriptures have practical application and meaning for us still today. And so it is we shall strive to do the same this evening, devoting the first part of the lesson to an overview of the historical facts and in the latter part of the lesson, to extract some lessons that can be beneficial to you and to me. To do that, let's begin by rehearsing briefly that which we saw last week, and then beginning to extend it into the chapters before us. Just as surely as the children of Israel left with such high-handedness and in such confidence the confines of Egypt, they did so because that tenth plague had rained death and destruction on is on the nation of Egypt. And the Pharaoh, as well as his Egyptian friends, were more than happy to insist that the children of Israel leave. And so they left. However, the Egyptians changed their mind, pursued them to those waters we call the Red Sea. Israel found themselves in a dire circumstance. God, however, simply asserted to them, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And so in indeed, as God instructed Moses to reach out that rod over the sea, the waters parted, and across in the duration of the evening and in the duration of the night, those people went on dry ground. As the waters came back together, the Egyptians were drowned, and Israel was finally a free people. Here they had been for almost two centuries. They had been prisoners in Egypt. They had been subjected to slavery and the difficulties surrounding it, but now finally, and might we take note that for all of them that were there in present, they had never experienced that liberty. All the while they had grown up in Egypt, they had always been slaves. But now finally, with freedom theirs, with liberty theirs, they began that journey toward that precious promised land that flowed with milk and honey. And so it was as they left the Red Sea area, They proceeded to arrive in various wildernesses. First, that wilderness called for us, that wilderness of Etham. As they proceeded through this area, they first encountered a difficulty. There was no water. Finally, God in His marvelous greatness extended to them the blessing of water because when they came to Marah, Though the water was bitter into that, God gave order to cast a piece of wood and it was made sweet and they thus 
were blessed with water. As that chapter closed, they came to Elim. And on that occasion too, how joyous it was to note the pleasantness of those circumstances. And all at once into chapter 16 we come. For now, before us tonight, we ask, where did they wander next? Where was the next set of encampments? And what events and circumstances happened to them then? You'll begin to notice on that slide, they came into the wilderness of Sin. That word S-I-N reminds us of Sinai, for this is the same wilderness where that Mount Sinai was located. And once they came here, they were given again to one of their favorite pastimes, murmuring. They had already murmured twice before, and now yet again, this time not over water, and not over the circumstances surrounding them as far as geography. This time they were murmuring over their food staples. And in fact, in verses 2 and 3 of Exodus 16, we notice that their language is so direct and so strong. Would to God, they said, we had died by the flesh pots in Egypt. On that occasion, they in fact essentially asserted that it would have been better if we had not advanced out of Egypt. Here was the people as the prized possession, housing within them, vouchsafed to them, the precious opportunity to be the lineage through whom the Christ child would come. They were a special people. And yet here they were, at least some of them, pondering the thought that it would be better if we never started this journey. It in a blessed circumstance that God had, in, had better confidence in them than they had in themselves. In fact, as you notice what occurs next on that slide, God heard their murmurings, their complainings, and He responded to them by promising, I will rain bread from heaven, Exodus 16.4. And over the next several verses, He described for them the specifics of the manner in which that manna would occur and how they would gather it. It would come with the dew each morning, and when the dew left, being evaporated, there left behind would be this small round thing. This thing likened unto coriander seed, and that had a taste likened unto wafers made with honey. This manna, as it's called, the particular bread from heaven, is the very same bread and the very same circumstance our Savior used in John chapter 6 to refer to Himself. It was on that occasion, wasn't it, that Jesus in discussion with the Jews made this point. They had begun by saying, Our fathers gave us the bread from heaven. Jesus quickly responded, You did not enjoy the true bread from heaven, for the one that speaks to you is the true bread from heaven. And the Lord went on to elaborate, I am the bread of life. In fact, he said that twice in verse 35 and again in verse 48 of that chapter. The Lord used the thought of the manna to teach the direct and powerful lesson that He is the life-giving bread for all humanity given by the God of heaven. As you can see in this passage as we roll to what occurs next, God was rather detailed in His specifics regarding how that manna was to come and how it was to be gathered. It would be provided six days out of every seven-day week. It was furthermore provided in such a way that they were to gather a day's portion each day. They were not to store it up, safekeeping it for use later, except on the sixth day in which a double portion could in fact be prepared, and they would thus use that second part of that portion for the activities of the seventh day. 
as all those details and specifics were provided, might we take note again, God had a specific lesson He wished the people to learn from the characteristics of the man. Following that, we can directly appreciate that the next statement that we find as chapter 17 opens is that they came to Rephidim. This is another location mentioned later in the Old Testament passages. When they came to Rephidim, we find again some interesting and unusual things that took place for them and to them. Not the least of which was this. We find yet one more time that they complain about something. On this occasion, yet again, it was the lack of sufficient water. They cried that there's not water. Oh, that you'd left us alone, Moses. And they were so ill with him that they even had the thought of doing bodily harm to him. Isn't it amazing that here the messenger was the one that they wished to harm? As you notice, one more time, God heard their complaints and He heard their pleas. This time, the water was brought out of a rock. Moses was given commandment to strike a certain rock, and when he did, water poured forth abundantly for the entirety of this group. And might we remember that, including the animals, with people alike, there would have been well over 10 million of them, and enough water came out of a rock to take care of all of them. Isn't that still a remarkable thing to consider? We can yet see in all of that at Rephidim, something else took place. As we give thought to what else occurred, you might notice that a name was given to this area. Massa on the one hand, Meribah on the other. For both of them had in their meaning a rather strong consideration about the characteristics of the children of Israel. It says again in verses 6, 7, and 8 that they tempted the Lord there. And you might note that that word Meribah has in it the thought of tempt or to, or to tempt. That word Massa has in it the thought of chiding, and they chided with Moses there. As was often the case in the Old Testament era, the names were given in such a way that it gave recourse to the events that actually took place there. But yet something else occurred at Rephidim. You might notice there was a confrontation with Amalek. For the first time, as this people proceed on their journey, another nation opposes them. Another nation proceeds to war and battle against them. It is a very good question to ask, how did they react? After being a prisoner for so long, did they have the fortitude, the stamina, and the military smarts to effectively battle against Amalek? We quickly learned the answer to that. And it was not in their own devices. It was one more time in the devices of the God of heaven, who when Moses ascended the mount and watched the war that was raging beneath, as long as Moses held his hands up, Israel prevailed. But when Moses' hands became weary and tired, and when he had to allow them to drop, suddenly Amalek began to have the prevailing superiority. No wonder Aaron and Hur perched Moses sitting on a rock, and they thus held his arms upward as long as it took for the children of Israel to prevail in that battle with Amalek. One more time, it was the power of God at their disposal. It was God working and battling for them that led to their victory over Amalek. And you might notice that as chapter 18 then sits before us, by and large it has to do with the meeting that Jethro had with Moses. 
We have studied Jethro many chapters before. He was also called Ruel. But now we notice that after they have left from Egypt, this gentleman Jethro brings Moses' wife and his two sons and brings them back to Moses so that they again can enjoy the friendly confines of being a family. But when he comes, he stays for a little while, and as he visits and watches the children of Israel, he is greatly disturbed by something. He observes and watches how the children of Israel come before Moses from morning until night to allow him to act as judge over their disagreements, over the difficulties that they were facing. In essence, he sat from morning till night as a judge. Jethro rather frankly said, this thing is not good. He furthermore said, you're going to wear yourself out. You need to appoint able men who shall be able to assist you. Those who can rule over thousands and hundreds and fifties. And the way that it ought to work, Jethro asserted, was this. When the people have minor disagreements, they should be able to come to one of those men who can assist by judging the right case that would be proper. If there are those cases that are exceedingly difficult and challenging, then they should bring those before you. Moses thought the advice was wonderful. And so it was that before that chapter closed, the works were already in progress to appoint individuals who could serve as those judges over tens and fifties and hundreds. And with that, the curtain closes on chapter 18. We have seen in a rather broad brushstroke a number of the elements contained in those three chapters. But let's cast the spotlight more directly on a few specific items so that we can apply the teachings of them to our lives today. As we do that, may I suggest our first one would be a thought that relates to the giving of the manna and the circumstances that surrounded it. We had the opportunity to touch on this somewhat during the Bible study hour this morning, but perhaps a more thorough job we can do on this occasion. The Israelites needed to learn a valiant lesson of constant and present trusting in the gifts of the God of heaven physically so that they would appreciate that as they wander in this wilderness, it was God and He alone that enabled them to successfully and victoriously emerge into that land of Canaan. The provision of the manna was not their doing. It was God's. And the food that's on your table and mine is given by the great hand and the beneficent hand of the God of heaven the shelter that is the roof over our head, the clothes on our back, all of those blessings are provided by God's bountiful hand. It's no wonder that some of the passages we read in Scripture point us to that realization. Many from the Proverbs could be noted, but I thought we might take note of just a few of these. Jesus, did He not say, Give us this day our daily bread in Matthew 6.11? Among the other things contained in the 69 words of that prayer, Jesus said, pray like this, disciples, give us this day our daily bread. And that prayer, as we learn from Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, was a prayer that was delivered on the occasion when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. Thus, as Jesus taught them to pray, it was sufficiently important enough for Him to note, including your prayers a petition for God to bless you each day with the food that you will enjoy that day and the other blessings that you will enjoy also on a given day. 
No wonder the psalmist asserted the trustworthiness in God in Psalm 37, 25. I have been young, David asserted, but now I'm old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. With regard to the source of these blessings, wasn't it James who so eloquently asserted, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. James 1, verse 17. God indeed is the one who supplies every perfect and every good gift. It comes from the bounty of His hand. How often were the prophets of the Old Testament in the position of encouraging Israel, don't you forget who it is that supplies you with your blessings day by day. It would be a veritable who's who of the Old Testament prophets to recall what Amos said in Amos 3 and what Micah asserted in Amos 2, or rather Micah chapter 2. What was it Jeremiah set forth so abundantly in Jeremiah 6 and 7? We could add to that list Ezekiel and the bounty of the words of Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3. All of that points us to realize that today our gifts and blessings also flow from the hand of one far greater than we. And may we be quick to thank Him for them. That brings us to one of the final points in that opening section. Isn't it amazing to notice the insistence that is provided to us in the Scriptures to be thankful in 1 Timothy 4, we read in verses 4, 5, and 6, the urgency to include thanksgiving in all of our prayers. In Ephesians 5, verse 20, be thankful in everything. That does help us to ever be mindful of how important it is to thank God for how good He has been to us. There is a story that's related to us in Luke chapter 12 that highlights the, fro- the folly and foolishness of forsaking and failing to remember who is the source and how we should dutifully use those blessings. It was of a rich farmer whose crops were so abundant that he made this decision, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. I'll store up what I have now been able to provide for myself. And this I shall say, Soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry, for thou hast laid up many goods for many years. It was God who had the final statement in that saga. In Luke 15, in the text that follow, the very last thing is, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? Doesn't that help us see that we do a great evil when we fail to remember it's God that provides. The farmer thought he had done it. How often did he use the word, I have provided, look what you soul have laid up. But God said, you should have used that far wiser than that. And that farmer apparently forgot the ultimate source and the value of the one who provided it. Can you and I not learn greatly from that and to apply the lesson powerfully in our life today? But yet another lesson also taken from this set of three chapters. You'll also notice we can learn much about following directions. It is true, isn't it, that God gave the children of Israel some direct directions with regard to that manna. It was to be gathered at a certain time of day. It was not to be gathered on the Sabbath because none would appear. Furthermore, it was not to be left over for it would breed worms and stink. They were particularly given these warnings, these instructions, and God expected them to follow them. 
as you though notice in verse in chapter 16 on every one of those particulars the people did a very bad job of following directions they didn't do what god told them to do the record in that chapter is given about some who went out on the sabbath and looked for it god was a bit angry and in fact he told moses to correct them with clarity and with power don't go out on the sabbath it's not going to be there People, you see, didn't pass the test very well when it came to following directions. With regard to storing it up, some of them tried to store it and it bred worms and it stank. They had to learn the valiant lesson. I've given these directions and I expect you to follow them. I would submit to you that all of us from time to time, if we're not careful, can fall into a similar problem. We too can have a very hard time following directions, simply doing what we are told. And it is in that thought that I've included some additional things for your consideration. Any family knows something about the value of following directions. When parents give children directions, it's not just idle talk, and it's not just that we parents can hear our head roar. We give those directions for the betterment of the child, and we expect them to be followed. By the same token, we understand there are other arenas in life in which directions can be provided, be it the workplace, at school. Our children know well about the directions provided by the principal or the teacher. Suffice it to say that the following of directions is important. And we each would do well to learn how valuable it is to be able to do that which we are told. It is in that way that these lessons come to bear upon us. It is the case that heaven waits for those who can follow directions. Heaven does not wait for those who cannot follow directions. Those who will not follow directions. That blessed place called heaven waits for those who have humbly and obediently done that which God said for them to do in the way that He said for them to do it, for the reason that He said for them to do it. And putting all of that together, that places a high privilege and a high priority upon following directions. Look at just a few passages with me, if you would. It was to Nicodemus, wasn't it, in John chapter 3, that Jesus very clearly said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus was perplexed. He was confused in verse 4. And as he asked, Is it possible or can it be that a man could enter again a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus amplified the thought with these words, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. As one gives thought about entering into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus there stated an absolute ultimatum. It is absolutely necessary for one to be born of water and of the Spirit. You and I could go along to mention many other absolutes, but this point is clear. What then should be said about me or you if we are not born of water and Spirit? Either one. It necessarily follows from the language of that passage that heaven doesn't wait for us. You see, there's an absolute ultimatum. You must be born of water. You must be born of spirit. 
To that, we could add many other passages. Mark 16, 16, Jesus there said, beginning in verse 15, "...go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned." That damnation that awaits those who refuse to believe, and the salvation that is not there for those that refuse to be baptized... Jesus stated it so simply, didn't He? No wonder in 1 Peter 3.21 we read, Whereunto the like figure, even baptism, doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. What then should be said about you or me if we refuse to be baptized? God has given His directions. We would be in the very same predicament as those in this chapter before us who decided to go out on the Sabbath and gather manna. God wasn't pleased then either. It'd be the same circumstance as those who tried to hoard up and to save the manna from day to day. Again, God was mightily displeased. And of course, it would be the same, as we'll learn later in Exodus, with regard to that circumstance concerning their failure in other ways with respect to God's commandments and laws. Following directions is vital. Our entrance into heaven depends on it. In fact, in Revelation 22, verse 14, the last chapter in God's book, we read there, Blessed is he that keepeth his commandments. Blessed is he that keepeth his commandments. How much simpler could it be? For to that one is granted entrance into the golden city, entrance and access to the tree of life. That point is certainly a powerful one indeed, isn't it? And can we not perhaps note finally, in Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. No obedience, no salvation. It is thus to be noted that this second lesson perhaps begins to point us to a third one. So far, we've learned the vitality of provisions God provides day by day. And we've also learned about the reality in this most recent lesson about following directions. In the third place, the value of able men. In the 18th chapter of Exodus, it was on that occasion that Jethro directly lifted high the value of able men. Appoint able men, Moses, who can assist you in judging this great people. Moses came to realize the value of that suggestion, and he proceeded to do the very thing that Jethro advised. And he did so, by the way, because it met too with the counsel of God. It wasn't merely Jethro's advice. In that way, might we notice, even today, how valuable that same suggestion is. The value of able men. God hasn't left the work of the church to one man. He hasn't left it to a single elder. He hasn't left it to the preacher. We each have the work that we can do and that we must do if we would be pleasing to God. And thus there is the value of others, not just one person. It has long been the case that the religious world has made a grand mistake with respect to the word pastor. It is generally the consensus of most in the religious world that that identifies some special man who works in this congregation and he really is the principal leader. 
He's the one through whom everything needs to go in terms of the decisions. He's the one through whom all the bases and fundamentals must be decided. There isn't anything in the Scriptures about that. It is absolutely unscriptural to even think about a pastor in that way. The word pastor does occur in the New Testament. It is used as a synonym for a number of other descriptives of an elder. An elder is called a pastor, a bishop, a presbyter, or an elder. And all of them, as they give reference to an overseer, we can in fact show easily from the book of Acts that when those words are used, they're referring to the one and same individuals. And hence, the view that so often is employed with respect to a pastor is not a scriptural one. No wonder we need to appreciate better the value of able men. We hear it pipping. For each man to contribute that which he can, and each lady, of course, as she can, within the realm and sphere that God has approved for her. In fact, along this line, we just had our second meeting in, in the back here earlier this afternoon. Men who desire to improve their skill and ability in directing various parts of the worship. And what a superb study it was, it seems to me. An opportunity for gentlemen, each of us, to better hone our abilities and to be more dutiful in expressing the things that God would have us to do in the service of Him in the worship hours. That's another instance of able men and them using the value of what God has given them in terms of talent. Isn't it interesting to reflect on some passages like these? In Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14, our Savior spoke a parable known as the parable of the talents. And in that, we can well remember how that parable proceeded. There was at first a five-talent man, a two-talent man, and a one-talent man. And the word talent makes reference there to money. The master said, go and use this while I'm away in a far country. Two of them did that. The five-talent man gained five more. The two-talent man gave two more. And they heard marvelous compliments and blessings from the master upon his return. The one-talent man didn't use what he had been given. In fact, he was called a wicked and slothful servant in verses 25 and following. In fact, it was there said, Take away the talent that he has and give it to another. I might submit there is a secondary lesson in all of that for us. If you and I fail to use our talents, could that well be teaching us that over time our ability to do that will wane and we may finally lose what capability that we had. That is something to consider, isn't it? No wonder we should be dutiful in making use of those talents and skills we have been given so that we can in fact be a profitable servant in the kingdom of God. To note a part of Luke 17, verses 6 through 8. As you'll notice some other passages along that line, we would perhaps be quick to note 2 Timothy 2, 2. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Notice these weren't just apostles. To the apostles it was said, you teach others so that they can teach others. There is this means for all of us to use those talents provided. Perhaps the icing on that cake is 1 Peter 4 verse 10, in which reference is made to the gift given to individuals, and may I submit that God has been good enough to each and every one of us to give us not some miraculous gift now, like what was in the New Testament era, 
but skills, abilities, capabilities, and talents so that we can be profitable servants and members in the kingdom of God. It is to be noted then as we come to our last lesson of the hour. Fourthly, could it not be noted, and this takes us back to the title of our lesson, stated in language like this, Is the Lord among us or not? The children of Israel asked that question in Exodus 17, 7. Is the Lord among us or not? They had reached the point in their wanderings, and remember, they hadn't been outside Egypt all that long with the time they uttered this. Despite the fact they had seen the Red Sea waters parted, despite the fact they'd seen water come from a rock, God had given them manna, they had seen much, and yet they ask, Is the Lord among us or not? To us, it may seem astounding that they would even ask such a question. How they could not have appreciated the answer. But I might be quick to ask at least a parallel question of us today. There are so many circumstances and situations in which various organizations readily claim the Lord is among us. He's here and I know He's here. He supports that which we do. I have the absolute assurance and confidence You and I, of course, would say the same thing about the work here at Pippin. The question then would be this. How do you know the Lord is among you or not? You and I are not given the blessing of miraculous powers like they were in the first century. I have every expectation that if one of us could raise a dead man, we probably could conclude the Lord is among us. He's working through that man. If one of us could immediately heal a blind man or a lame woman, we would have great assurance and confidence the Lord is among us. But we now live far past the age of miracles. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that has passed away now. So today, how do you and I know it? How confident can we be? Is the Lord among us or not? May I submit to you the New Testament addresses this in ways that helps us answer it. May I point you to a few of these matters. And the first thing to notice, our answer to that question does not depend on external circumstances. It doesn't. That particular group of people who are in the wrong and who give credence to that which is false, they will have their times of celebration amongst themselves. They will have times in which they face problems. However, that congregation who is as faithful and sound as possible, they too will have their problems. There will be issues and circumstances that arise. And so one can't just immediately conclude that if the Lord is among us, we will have no problems. Or if the Lord is among us, we will face no trials. That isn't true at all. For we learned last Sunday evening that God is a God who gives us tests Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 6. And so that's not the answer. That's not the way we know. How else can we know? Might we notice that we are given the absolute assurance that God is with those who give adherence, complete adherence, to the doctrine revealed in His Son. We are told that in 2 John 9. We are told that in 1 Corinthians 4. We are told that directly often from those statements of our Savior in the gospel accounts. Jesus on many occasions said that the doctrine He revealed was what God had revealed to Him. John twelve forty nine is one example. 
Jesus went on then to say that if you and I love Him, we will do what He says. Well, you'll notice that love indicates a relationship. It indicates we are in Him. And that is one of the favorite expressions found in the entirety of the New Testament, being in Christ. I'd submit that's the ultimate answer to this this matter. If you and I are to be those for which the Lord is among us, we must be in Him. If we aren't in Him, we can't expect Him to be among us. And thus, that points us directly back to what the church is all about. The ecclesia, those called out of a world of sin into a covenant relationship with God. The church. No wonder Paul affirmed then in Galatians 3, 26 and 7, "...you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ." Christ is put on when, and not until, but when we are baptized into Him. That's the only way the New Testament reveals one enters Christ, but think of the blessings to those who are in Christ. All spiritual blessings are theirs, Ephesians 1.3. They enjoy the opportunity to appreciate the concrete things related to the grace of God, Romans 5 verse 2. They are the ones of whom it is spoken in Ephesians 2.8. By grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so it is. Is the Lord among us or not? We must point directly to, are we in Him? And are we following the inspired pattern He has revealed? If we are, we have the complete assurance that He is among us. Perhaps as we draw that particular statement to its conclusion... I'm reminded of that famous statement that was made to Asa, King Asa of the long ago in Second Chronicles 15.2. There it was directly said to him, God will be with you as long as you are with him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. That seems so direct and pointed, doesn't it? And notice how the premise follows so directly into the New Testament, even of our day. And then finally, one closing thought. We have the assurance in Colossians 1.27 that Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in Galatians 4.19, My brethren, I labor and travail over you until Christ be formed in you. Tonight, has Christ been formed in you? I'm crucified with Christ, Paul wrote. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet tis not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Are you in Christ tonight? If you're not, then according to what we've just studied, the Lord is not with you either. If you've reached that age of knowing wrong from right and that Christ died for you and that you are currently in sin and that you're lost in this state, There's going to be a song sung in just a moment, and we'd be excited to aid you in your response to the gospel call of invitation. We need you to make that first step. If you need to return to your first love, as we witnessed this morning, we'd be honored to pray with you and for you. The hour of opportunity is upon us, and tonight we've learned a variety of these lessons. We've seen the historical features of chapters 16 to 18 in Exodus, and we've learned these four lessons. God's provisions for a day, the importance of following directions, the value of able men, 
And finally, how to answer properly the question, is the Lord among us or not? If He's not with you tonight in your life, you need to fix that. And you need to let Christ help you fix it. And we need you to do that. And Christ expects you to do that by making proper obedience to the things He has stated. And if we can assist you in doing that tonight, why not let that be known? While together we stand and while we sing.